Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm Mahin and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Sheikh Amr Saeed, Moor, and Sim. And today in studio, I'd like to welcome a very special guest, uh, Brother Dawood Walid, who is visiting us from Michigan. Many of y'all know Brother Dawood from his work for for Care Chicago, but he's actually here teaching at the here intensive. So, Brother Dawood, thanks for coming through uh, our studio. I know you got a tight schedule. I think he's on uh, Care Michigan. Yes, Care Michigan. That's what I said, right? No, Care Care Chicago. Chicago. That's it, Care Chicago? Yeah. Yeah. My colleague, Ahmed Rehab, is the director of Care Chicago. Are you the director of Care Michigan? I'm the executive director of Care Michigan, yes. I knew, I knew, yeah. So, uh, with that being said, uh, I just want to like talk a little bit about we think care, you know, here as a more like isn't that more of like a spiritual kind of um, setting? Um, you know, you I normally wouldn't think a, a care person would come in and talk about that, but what do they got here? What do they have you here talking about? Okay, well, first, uh, thanks for uh, having me on, and um, I've listened to some of your podcasts at the Med Mem Luke, so it's really an honor and privilege to be here with you, and inshallah, may Allah protect each and every one of you, increase you in khair, and give you al-afiyah for doing you with akhirah. Yeah, you, you, you won't imagine how long I've been wanting to get you on, and alhamdulillah, it's, it's just something that, it's a reminder that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides you and gets you who you want, whether whether you're even trying or not. You know, I didn't get a chance to even reach out to you, but I've been wanting to get you on. I've told Mahin that he's on our list and we have to reach out to him. He's been talking about you for like three months, mashallah. And uh, I've been following you on Facebook and Alhamdulillah, we just got a call last night that you're in town and we're, we're, uh, we we just went out and met you and uh, you're gracious enough to give us your your time. So thank you so much. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Uh, Regarding why I'm here with Hira, you are correct that it is more... A spiritual-based Ahira intensive that is uh, taking place, um, you know, for a few weeks at uh, Benedictine University uh, here in Chicagoland area. Uh, besides my position as executive director of the Michigan Chapter of Care uh, and being involved in civil rights, uh, accuracy, and racial justice activism, uh, I have studied um, the Islamic sciences. I've been an imam at two different. Uh, mosque in metropolitan Detroit area at Meshit Wai Muhammad and also at the Bosnian American Islamic Center for a while. I'm currently on the uh, on the committee or the board of the uh, Imams Council for the Michigan Muslim Community Council, so um, which is a, uh, a a gathering of uh, Sunni and uh, Shi'i uh, shiuch and scholars that try to deal with some of the uh, contemporary issues that are going on with the broader Muslim community in southeastern Michigan. So um, I'm kind of like wearing like two hats as far as being here at the Hero Intensive because I was uh, giving classes for two days on prophetic social justice. So I was using my experience as far as studying uh, usul fiqh and, and Quran and in the spiritual sciences, uh, ruhaniya or the spirituality, a tasawwuf, some people would use that term, isan. And also, uh, talking about my, uh, experience of being the executive director of a branch of America's largest civil liberties organization for about the past decade. So it's the largest organization civil li- for civil liberties right now? For American Muslims Care, American Muslims, uh, okay. with its national office in DC and 30, uh, some chapters is the largest civil liberties organization for American Muslims 
uh, here in these United States of America. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, like, we had a chance to spend some time yesterday at, in Alhamdulillah uh, with Sheikh Hamza Makbul, and you know, obviously, you're you have studied uh, with traditional ulama, yes, um, etc. And within the religious sphere of Muslims, you know. We tend to find when we hear social justice, we then think social justice warriors and neg- and a lot of like negative connotations. Um, negative can- connotations in terms of people, because people might get the wrong idea, because there are some great social justice activities that happen. But then you hear about some events or situations where people are going after people's jobs, right? But when they say something that they don't like, they start tweeting at the person and also the company they work at or the educational institute that they mm-hmm. happen to be teaching at. And that's when things get more toxic, right? Yeah. Can you can you expound on your thoughts on the difference between maybe proper social justice versus what we would known as the SJW? Well, uh, I would like to first start off with what I was talking to the young people at, at the university. And that is when we talk about social justice, we need to define what is justice in Arabic from a Lugawi perspective or a linguistic perspective as well as functional. Like what is al-adl or al-adala really mean from an Islamic definition? And then we can then see the difference of uh, those two different uh, terms of people who fit in those two different spheres. So uh, uh, al-adala basically, and uh, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziya, uh, the great Hanbali scholars, as well as many other scholars, have said that justice means things functioning or being in their proper place as Allah intended them to be in. So uh, when things are going relatively in society, uh, according to the the function that Allah Azawajal wanted them to be in, in the, in the social world, in the natural world, then that constitutes a level of justice in society. When people take things outside of their natural or proper places in the mizan or the balance that Allah put in in this creation in the, in the social and material world, uh, when people take that outside of its proper ban- boundaries, that is a dhulm or al-jar, which is oppression, which is injustice, which is wrongness and or, or wrongdoing. So uh, sometimes we have social justice warriors who their metrics or their parameters on justice and injustice isn't based upon transcendent values. It's not primarily based in the Quran and the Sunnah. It is based upon man-made constructs on what constitutes justice and injustice. And in many cases here in the United States of America, as Professor uh, Robert George stated, who's a professor at Princeton University, a a conservative scholar, says that the conception of what many people see as justice today is not based upon a divine revelation, nor based upon empirical data and reason, but it's based more upon emotions. And he calls this the age of feeling, right? Uh, so yeah. that's that's the difference between, I believe, um, the basis of someone who was involved in social justice from the uh, Islamic framework is first grounded in sound aqidah, right? Whereas someone who is involved as a so-called social justice warrior who may be a Muslim, the the starting point or the the basis isn't usulut deen. It's not the foundation of the deen that's based upon this very uh, basic th- uh, understanding that's part of tawheed, of, of understanding Allah, his position, and his beautiful names, which uh, al-Bayhaqi 
in, in, in his writings say that El uh, Adil is one of Al-Asma'ul Husna, is one of Allah's most beautiful names. And he's the just, the one that put everything in its proper place. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you made that comparison because uh, we were talking yesterday and um, and usually the so- social justice wars are equated with the, the, the left or the liberals, right? And, right? and I was mentioning that liberals generally don't have a uh, a principle that they found themselves on. It's usually a feel-good movement. If it feels good emotionally, then go ahead and go for it. And lately, like a, lo- a lot of that has been the case when you have uh, social justice warriors that will um, jump on a cause without not really without knowing the evidence, the empirical evidence, or the actual um, specifics of a case, or wh- whatever it may be. But they emotionally, they're charged, and so they jump on the bandwagon. And uh, like you said, that's very dangerous because the criteria for a Muslim to be standing up for something should be rooted in Islam and not just simply based on emotions. That's right. And uh, as Muslims, we should be empathetic to people's feelings, but someone's feelings is not hoja. Like, it's not an incontrovertible proof. It's not qatir. Like, it's not something that's incontrovertible that can't be questioned. Someone's feelings could be correct and they could be incorrect. Sometimes feelings are, are, are driven by shahwa, shahawat, like animalistic desires, right? So, like, that is a difference. So, uh, someone's feelings, because someone feels that way, their feelings are not authoritative to me. Like, no one's feelings can trump anyone else's feelings, but especially if someone's feelings of justice or right or wrong is based upon divine revelation. And I think that uh, we as a Muslim community, uh, we need to be careful about giving ourselves too much to leftist thought and leftist ideology. We have, uh, there are some things that the right upholds as good, and there are certain things that uh, functionality-wise or in action may hurt us. At the same time, uh, there are certain things on the left that in our long-term interests, though they might appear to be like allies, there are certain things that maybe in the long term will cause us more harm. And I think that, actually, I don't think I know, I should say I know, that one of the maqasid of the sharia is hizwuddin. Like, we have to protect our deen. We have to protect our our way of life and not treat being Muslim as just some sort of quasi-social political identity or ethnic identity. You know, being Muslim is based in faith. It's based in certain beliefs that are transcendent, that come from a transcendent being. And uh, I'm not really interested in just defending Muslims as some sort of social political identity to the exclusion or to us losing our our actual transcendent beliefs and values because this dunya is only temporary. We're going to have to face Almighty Allah on the day of judgment. And that is the real reality. And, and if everyone is against our beliefs, uh, I think that, uh, or at least for myself, uh, I think that we should be willing to live by that and die upon that. Even if the entire society finds uh, what is uh, what our beliefs are to be wrong, I, our, our values should never be subjected to public opinion polls, including what the left thinks. I agree. I mean, the thing it's funny is that sometimes uh, people believe that if you agree with certain issues on the left or right, you have to be all in or nothing. And Mm -hmm. that's not the case because I believe, I mean, it's my opinion that uh, generally uh, Muslim values or Islamic principles are generally, we, we align more with the right on moral issues. Than yes. we do with the left, and fiscally maybe we align more with the with the left, you know, in terms of 
welfare programs and things like that or giving money and sadaqah, we agree with the left a little bit more. But I've seen that nowadays that if you are with the left, you have to hate automatically everything on the right. And you ha- if you're on the right, you have to hate everything on the left automatically. I think as Muslims, the problem is that we don't see things through liberal and, 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 and right-wing. We see it as what does the Quran and the Sunnah define to us as right and wrong. And I think that's where a lot of people are blurring the lines. And you'll have particularly like scholars who are being blacklisted because certain, um, you know, social justice warriors will feel like what they're what they're saying isn't lining up with the left, and so it becomes almost offensive to them, and they say, "Oh, we shouldn't give a platform to these people," when even though what that scholar might be saying is pure huck, it's, it's truth, right? And so they're they're setting a precedence for certain people to now um, re- or, or throw away scholars based on the idea that it's not lining up with the left. Yes, and there's two things I'd like to say uh, regarding that. The first is uh, I agree with what you said, and uh, as far as what our advocacy and activism should be about, and it's based upon transcendent values. Actually, Allah Azza wa Jalla Quran is very clear on what our parameters are as far as how we align with people and work with certain people on certain issues. And not working with, we can work with certain people on certain issues without buying into their whole program and working with them on other issues. So Allah Azza wa Jal says in Surah Ma'idah, the second ayah, uh, and cooperate with each other based upon al-bir, piety, wa taqwa, regardfulness for Allah. So this is the first part. Anyone who's coming with something on an issue that aligns with that, that is, righteous, wholesome, that is permissible, and that is regardful of like the human soul and the human soul's relationship with God in a healthy way, then we can work with people on those issues in that parameter, right? But don't cooperate with each other based upon sinful matters, those that are indecent, fush, obscene, those things are haram, and those things that bring about enmity amongst the children of Adam. So we've been given a clear criterion in the Quran. And then the rest of it says, what taqwullah and be regardful for Allah. Inna Allah shadid al-iqab. Because Allah is stern in punishment for those who deviate outside of these parameters. So the Quran is very clear about this. Now, in terms of you're talking about the social justice uh, warriors, we have a gap that needs to be closed in our community. We have, on the one end, we have a, a scholarly class of people who have studied the, the traditional sciences of Islam. And the, and even within this, the gap is being closed, but the majority of these scholars are people who were not born and raised in the American context. So many of them have a type of like historical and cultural illiteracy about the United States of America. Many of them are aloof about the trends about what's going on, right? So... We have this gap. On the other hand, we have activists or someone you call social justice warriors where they are religiously illiterate. Uh, I'm not going to be very blunt about it. Yeah. Right. They're, they're religiously illiterate. Like they have no grounding in, 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 in traditional learning and tarbiyah. They don't have a sheikh or a murshid, a teacher, uh, I, I said to Sheikh Hamza the other night that uh, most uh, social justice activists who don't have a weird are weird. 
right? Like <laughs> they don't have a litany, they don't have a dhikr, right? They don't sit in the circles or, or the halakat of learning, right? So then you have this disconnect where you have scholars who have studied texts, but maybe don't have a communication with the activists and don't know what's going on, on the ground. And then you have some some activists who know what's going on, on the ground in certain areas, but then they're not a communication and they're not getting the proper spiritual guidance and grounding from the murshideen or from the ulama. So then we have like this tension where many activists think that the scholars are irrelevant. And then the scholars think that the social justice activists or the social justice warriors, quote unquote, are, are, are astray. And because the activists uh, tend to have a louder platform on social media and then even subhanAllah, even will write about it in huff posts and go on TV stations and will say things, then they get the louder voice. And then you have this issue where many of these people actually um, have uh, steered uh, the youth away from having the proper respect and deportment towards uh, ulama. So then this this increases the crisis of adab that we have in our in our community because there's not we also as we have a crisis of aqidah we also have a crisis of adab and i think that's because we have this we sometimes inherit even those of us on the religious side as a backlash we might embrace i know like so for example like personally might have a bad habit of embracing the because in reaction to a leftist movement you might you know use terminology or use the adab of somebody again not from a Muslim background, but someone who pr- who promotes the opposite ideology. Right. You know what I mean? And well, I think that's well, one thing. So go ahead. Well, in order to co-opt that, you're seeing um, on, on questions on popular forums like uh, the Islam forum on, on Reddit, very popular forum. Uh, and I want you to uh, read this question out, out loud uh, just so there's proof that I'm, I'm not making this up. <laughs> yeah, the question so, is that Sim just gave me, was Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa a social justice warrior. So th- these are the type of things that are being kind of made up to justify or kind of give credit cre- credence to the social justice movement that, you know, the Prophet ﷺ was a social justice warrior. So who is wo- so-and-so Or scholar? I even heard something like, for example, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, if he was alive today, he would be at the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement. I saw that on Facebook a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Do you know what the confusing part about that is? SubhanAllah, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu was such a perfect human being that you could portray him any way you wanted to. If you if you don't take the complete picture, you can make him look like only a social justice warrior, only a politician, only a prophet. And I think they're trying to group that and find validation in saying, oh, well, look, the Prophet stood up for, you know, some oppressed people. So that means we should all automatically align with everybody, you know, because they felt that way. Right. And, and and he just brought a good point about, for example, somebody saying the prophet would be at a BLM protest. And me personally, I don't think so. I've been quite outspoken about how I don't really agree with BLM at all. Um, I think it's a waste of time, you know, for, for people that have jumped onto it. Um, and, and I think intentionally it started off well, but right now what we see, we have to look at who's actually pushing this movement forward. So, so, uh, Allah Azza wa Jalla says in the Quran, Right, that he, السلام, was sent to be sufficient for all of mankind, all of humankind. And that's in every aspect of life, be it to show proper ethics of doing business, being a, a, a father, right, being a husband. All, and also as far as trying to bring about social good. So he was the best of ones. He was the best of human beings to do al-amu bin ma'ruf wa nahiyan al-munkar. 
enjoying the good and forbidding the evil, which is, is supposed to be at the foundation of Islamic social justice. I'm going to yeah. say, it, or Islamic parameters within social justice. Uh, but as you say, some people have taken it to say he would have been a social justice warrior as a illegitimate proof that he would have been involved in certain movements or copying the lack of adab or copying the platform of other people. So I'm just going to be let you know about Black Lives Matter and where I stand on that. Black Lives Matter as a mantra is good. The origin of it is good because Black Lives Matter that came out of the Trayvon Martin uh, homicide was basically saying Black Lives Matter uh, is important because black lives have never mattered in America as much as white lives. And that's true. Now, the actual 501c3 organization, I like to quote Ali ibn Abi Talib when he said, that it is a, a word of truth, but the intentions behind it aren't necessarily right and exact, right? So you have Black Lives Matter, but when we're talking about from the Islamic perspective framework, some of it is good, and then uh, some of its platform is trying to equate or relate black suffering with that which is clearly forbidden, right? That goes outside of that which Allah ordained to be in its proper place, right? Number one. Then two, the adab. Like there's nothing prophetic about politicians having rallies, like what Black Lives Matter did bum-rushing a stage for like Hillary Clinton, uh, Bernie Sanders, shouting people down with expletives and taking the mic and taking over someone's program. That You will not find that in the Sirah to Nabawiyah. You will not find our prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sallam, doing something like that. No, we will find quite the opposite of prophetic character. So we cannot possibly think that we're going to get to the ends of what we truly want using means that go outside the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Nabi Muhammad was established above the most magnificent character, not upon, even above the most magnificent character any human beings could ever exemplify. His character was above that. And so, I like, we just need to take a step back. Yes, uh, the shooting of unarmed black people should be important to Muslims. One, because justice isn't just us, right? Number two, it is part of us because one third of American Muslims basically are black. And we've had black Muslims from Ahmadou Diallo back in the day to people before to afterwards that have been shot and killed unjustly by law enforcement. So it's our issue uh, uh, as well. And we're supposed to be the foremost of those who help people. Our Prophet said that the best of the people benefits the people, but we need to, instead of adopting everyone else's nomenclature, everyone else's language, everyone else's tactics, if we believe that we're the best of nations, we don't need to follow everyone down the lizard hole. We can come up with and use our own language, our own strategies, and take the lead in dealing with some of these issues. So we have apathy where some Muslims don't want to get involved in dealing with the issues of police brutality and mass incarceration at all because they don't think that it affects the Muslims. I have a Muslim enough issue. On the other hand, we have Muslims who empathize but then use unprophetic means and even will endorse certain things 
that are haram or or advocate for certain things that are haram uh, because they see an injustice thinking that that's going to get the uh, the right result. So the ends can't justify the means. And uh, I've been very explicit about I support Black Lives Matter as a mantra, but as a movement, I can't co-sign it. So the reason why I kind of wanted to touch on that was because uh, previously in some of our episodes, um, I-, I began talking about you know why some of these social justice warriors support Black Lives Matter. And I made a comment that some people might have find offensive. And I said, well, you know what? A lot of these people nowadays who are social justice warriors, they're big into like the hip hop community and things like mm-hmm. that. And for them, being black is cool right now. Meaning that what I'm saying is like the, you know, the, the dressing that way. Culture the vultures yeah, is culture, a term. Exactly. They culture are, vultures. And we've seen this also with, uh, you know, the ACLU. Remember, we saw someone who's pretending to be black, you know, because she identified as a black woman. Right. But they're basically, now it's the cool thing to do for a lot of these people. And so for them, uh, being part of BLM, they're validating their, their, their own identity. They're saying, oh, you know, I'm down with these people. Right. And so that makes them feel more black essentially you know so i'm not saying it's everybody but someone got offended and say well you know what you're not black so you can't talk about these issues and so my response to that was well look if you want the problem with that is i don't even think that black lives matter as a group now is being really pushed in the interest of black people i mean the people pulling the strings behind really have a a uh, almost a homosexual agenda behind it like they're using you have homosexuals that are using the death of straight black men to push an agenda forward. I mean, the irony behind that is, 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 is apparent. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just saying that, you know, for me being a Muslim and for me being against BLM doesn't mean that I'm against black people or I'm racist. Right. It just means that I'm questioning your motive. I, I definitely support, I think black people being shot is a problem in this country. I think it, it, police brutality in itself is a problem in this country. But I don't think that Black Lives Matter is an accurate representation of, uh, uh, or, or uh, a means of dealing with that problem. Okay. Yeah. In in fairness to the 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 listeners who were upset about your comments, they were they were upset about the comment that says um, th- that black people are cool and therefore racism doesn't exist, and that's how they interpreted it as. That- no, I mean that, 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 I don't think that that's what I'm tr- trying to say because look, um, there are I mean you could be a white person and 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 be in the top of the food chain and still have yeah. uh, racism done towards you. It doesn't it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. What I'm saying is that people that I mean generally right now. I mean, the black culture in itself, meaning like like hip hop, and it's been it's more famous than it ever was in America, right. right? Meaning, so a lot of these people are inclined to that, which is fine. I mean, it's great. I mean, people listen to music, and I mean, great. They put they provide value to American a fabric of American society, right? But a lot of these people feel like in order to be down with those things or be cool with that, they have to support anything that's automatically black, like they're supporting Black Lives or anything with that title and title in it without actually questioning the motive, and that's my issue. So the issue of um, I know you've talked about this too. This maybe the mentality of the Desi community or like the immigrant Muslim community. Mm-hmm. A lot of us. I'll be very frank with myself. When I was growing up, especially in the '90s, that was kind of like I had an identity. Like I didn't see. I'm a. I'm, I was born in Bangladesh, but I didn't see a way to connect with my Bangladeshi heritage. I hadn't. Mm-hmm. I hadn't been back in 13 years. Right. Um, and I saw like the African American community as. That's that's something I can relate to. Like I liked, for example, like I still do. You see, I've got, I still wear Air Jordans. That's my thing. Like it's like sneakers, the 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 fashion, that kind of thing was always gravitated towards me. A lot of people say that's well, okay. I'm I'm now like 
taking someone else's culture or this and that. The whole, I don't know. They call it appropriation now, but um, is is that a real problem or is there something? Because um, or is that um, that w- that we're missing? Cause a lot of people say that like the way Mort the way Mort feels is because the racism inherent within the like the immigrant Muslim community is so deep that that's why he would say something like that. Well, that's a few things, but to go back to what he was saying, I'll come to you. So, number one, um, all the people who joined Black Lives Matter marches, they came out because of individual things that have taken place that are a culmination of part of American history, but doesn't necessarily mean they support Black Lives Matter. They just came out in the street because there was a march. So, that's one thing. Two, there's not one way of being black, right? And all and like one group doesn't speak for black people or represent the issue of uh, police brutality and how to deal with it. There are African-American intellectuals who have been speaking out long before Black Lives Matter and disagree with some of the tactics or some of the platform of Black Lives Matter. That's another thing. Now, going back to what you what you said, uh, hip hop uh, as a movement that started from New York City really in the late 1970s and then grew and became more uh, commercialized. Yet the at the ground uh, floor, and there's different elements of hip hop. You have the rapping, the DJing, you have breaking. You know, you have graffiti art. Um, there were black people uh, and people from West Indian uh, background, uh, in particular, uh, DJ uh, Cool Herc was one of them. <laughs> but you, but you also had Latinos that are a part of it, right? Like you know, the Rocksteady crew, Crazy Legs, the Puerto Ricans, some of Puerto the, Ricans, yeah. some of the, some of the, the most prolific DJs of the early era, those are Latinos, right? But I mean, when you look at the starting of uh, of Def Jam Records, like Rick Rubin's Jewish, like a, a rap producer, right? You you know you had the the Beastie Boys, and you know when you had um uh you know Step Into My World, you know, and yeah, and that yeah. yeah exactly right. So I'm so I'm saying that hip hop has never been a solely just black black entity, though it came from the streets. But hip hop as a movement was trying to address certain things counterculture of those who did not feel like they fit in totally to the dominant white culture. So I don't think that hip hop and its different elements are just for uh for white I mean for for black people alone. Uh at the same time, I don't think that people need to be putting on fake accents or thinking that they have to have a certain type of of swag to be outside of how they came up to make them seem more down and more in the movement uh and 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 then want to you know speak at this conference and drop this you know reference <laughs> or make this type of video to make themselves be more down you know what i mean now i'm not i'm i'm not i'm not down with that you know at all and and that those are type of people that would fall under the the definition of why I say are culture vultures. But if it's someone funk. Right, yeah, give you fake in the funk, right? <laughs> but nothing wrong with someone who's Daisy or who's Arab who is down, you know, with spoken word and the hip hop culture and rap or DJs or I mean, you know, I mean in in, in principle we can go into like, you know, is all the dancing legit? You know, in in certain company and certain mixed company, where's the dancing at, right? Uh, uh, what are the lyrics of the music? Like we can like discuss that because all of that's not halal or kosher or whatever, right? But 
Uh, I hope I'm answering your question, but right. yeah. No, I think we got to drift a bit. Meaning hip hop wasn't just founded for black people. It exactly. It was a movement that was a kind of a counterculture. It was raising awareness. It was yeah, it was, it was a counterculture yeah. and it was just an identity outside of the norm. And so anybody really joined in, he's right. You know, Puerto Ricans, West Indians, Jamaica, everyone took part in that culture in, in New York City. And so I think it's different. Oh, and just you, to go further, like yeah. when I was in elementary school in the late 70s, I'm I'm 45 years old. In the late 70s, I was in elementary school, and I was in New York uh, for a year. But I remember the beatboxing and freestyling on the basketball court. I remember people bringing out their cardboard and breaking. Like I was like right there, and I remember seeing it. Right, like I was there, and I remember that in those gatherings in the cipher that it just wasn't all black people in the cipher. Yeah. Right, so. I mean, keep in mind, you have Run DMC that made a song with, like, Aerosmith. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right, a totally opposite sure. ends, you know? I, I do have a practical question for uh, Dawood because, um, like, a lot of, the podcast we were referring to, like, that Mort got some heat was mm-hmm. the Imam Omar Muhammad podcast. Um, y'all can go back and check it out. But one of the things that somebody even reached out to me was about, because Imam Omar also didn't really have a, he was, like, wasn't really fond of Muslims being aligned with the BLM movement. With that being said, though, there's a couple like things I've and heard. a lot of African American imams and scholars, by the way, quiet is kept. I'm not going to drop all the names, but some of the one more prominent ones, even that speak at the national conferences or speak outside of the country, are not down with BLM. So I, I said to put that out there. Not just Imam Omar or Daoud. It's like it's it's much beyond that. So what is like so? But let's say we want to get because the question I have is like, well, what's a practical solution? And some people say. That is it just because are we just criminalizing the LGBT movement? Like, whereas why can't we like partner with them? Why? Like, let's say the BLM movement is L- they're all LGBT folks, right? Why can't we partner with them to advance the causes against privilege brutality when we have no problem partnering with organizations or people who may commit other sins or be upon kufr? That's what their argument would be. Isn't kufr worse than, you know? being part of the LGBT movement. If it's a coalition and they're not driving the agenda and they're a part of other, uh, a part of another coalition, right, where it's not being driven totally by them and trying to insert certain things on a particular issue in the name of so-called intersectionality, like I have no problem and don't think that uh, Muslims uh, can't work with them. But there's a difference between a coalition and calling people allies in a movement or being part of an alliance. Like this is the, this is the nuanced difference. Like working with people on a specific issue within certain parameters and us being able to maintain our adab, no problem. Uh, but when it steps outside of those parameters, then that's where the line. And, and we have hujah for this in hadith sahih that's narrated by, uh, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal as well as al-Bihaqi and others. May Allah's mercy be upon them. Amen. That we have the story of Hilfu Fudul, like the, the treaty of virtues or of goodness. And uh, just very briefly to refresh the listeners, uh, prior to Quran being revealed to Habibullah, when he was young, he was witness of something that took place in Mecca where there was a Yemeni man who got cheated out of business. He cried out that he had been cheated. Um, so the the elders of of uh, Mecca went into the house of Abdullahi bin Jud'an and they made a compact to say that no one would be cheated in business 
and in Mecca, and they would make sure that if someone wasn't treated properly, they would get their rights restored. Rasulullah was asked about this uh, from the Sahaba, and he said that uh, that this is more beloved to me than the best camel. And he said, if I were called to this in Islam, I would accept, meaning that even if the people's aqidah wasn't right, even if they had some sort of moral shortcoming, but on this particular issue that aligned with with Islamic transcendent values, he would work with people, even if they were disbelievers, on this narrow issue. So there's no problem working in a broader coalition. But now, if they're trying to introduce other things where it's so-called quid pro quo, now that's where we have the problem. Like just because someone scratched our back over here doesn't mean we're obligated to scratch their back or scratch something else, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just because they did it to us. And that's that's what we really need to be clear about. So I think this goes back to what you were saying originally. Okay. So you want to say something? Go ahead. No, I'm not going to say anything all yeah, day. You, no, I was just observing. Things. I'm observing, yeah. and I was I was taking everything. He's like in the shake here, and we're yeah. like, no, no, no we have shake right here. Man. I, was, I was just absorbing everything. No, um, I think uh, um, the uh, as far as the lesson that we learned from Hilfir Fadul also, which is very valuable, is that Rasulullah was very justice driven, right? Yes. And um, I think that as far as the dilemmas that we're facing, even as far as the the, the social justice warriors, as we're referring to. A lot of it is reactionary, right? And um, the situation that we have to look at ourselves is that everything has to do with the reaction and there's no proactivity taking place, mm-hmm. right? So we feel that we've accomplished something by being super reactionists, right? Or reactionary. And that, that becomes a problem. That becomes a dilemma. And I think the second thing is that Rasulullah he would help out anybody he can. But yes. one thing we have to remember is that he was on a mission. And I want us to imagine that, you know, we're going on this straight path, which is this mission, and anything you could pick on the side to help individuals because of that mission, he would do. But what we've done sometimes is to say that if Rasulullah was a part of, you know, I've even heard people say of Rasulullah, and I, I hate saying this, but because, you know, people are born in a certain way, Rasulullah, if he was living in our time, he would probably be very, very comfortable with being a part of the LGBTQ movement. And I got, you know, that was that was very uncomfortable for me. But one thing we have to understand is what we're taking is small elements of what we saw Rasulullah do as a part of his mission, and we're making that the entire prophethood. And that becomes a very big problem. But as you mentioned in the beginning, I, I love that that whole prequel that that led to this podcast is that he wanted to make sure everything was just according to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted, so. right? And based on that justice, then there's other things that come along the path that you have to help out. If you're a good human being, if you're optimal, if you're a perfect human being, you're going to take those things and you're going to bring them with you, but you're not going to make that the entire focus because that's what makes people lose traction and lose you know, their eyes on the prize, basically. So I think that um, um, all of all of us and all Muslims have to understand that at the end, we have to make sure that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what he thinks is just, has to be upheld. And for that very reason, we know that the hadith of Rasulullah that the people who are going to be with the Sayyidah Shuhada, Sayyid Shuhada Hamza radiallahu anh, in Jannah are those individuals that went and spoke just even to a tyrant and tyrant killed him for that. Yes. Right? And, and, and without getting too political... But this is this is one of the the the, the grounds, or I want to say the um, 
uh, the 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 foundations of Islam that no matter who it is, you still have to be very well behaved in your adab, and that's where adab comes in. We can't say you know we're only going to focus on adab and nothing else because Muhammad said I'm an awesome adab. No, you still have to have awesome adab when you're talking to a tyrant. Yes, right, because of upholding justice. That's how it should work. You know, Allah alam. Yes, um, and I, this is something I taught to the young people today that talking about this issue of adab and speaking uh, truth to power is that when we look at when Allah commanded Musa wa Harun to go to Fir'aun, Fir'aun was the worst human being on earth. Yeah. And even then, Allah commanded, speak to him speak to him with a moderate, lenient voice. Don't shout him down. Don't cuss him out. Don't call him names. You can speak the truth to him, but come with a moderate tone when you approach him and not with insults, not, you know, all of these things. So that's something that's very important. And also, when we talk about uh, that uh, hadith, as well as the uh, the other hadith, which uh, one of our sisters got in trouble for, for quoting at Isna, uh, speak a word of truth or speak a word of justice to a, a tyrant, right? Um, we speak a word of truth to tyrants, but we, we should speak words of truth in general to people who are taking things outside of their proper places or promoting immorality, right? Promoting uh, that. So it means... It's not just speaking truth to power to the president or people on the right. We need to also speak the truth to people on the left. And one thing that I've noticed, too, uh, I think it's a reaction, uh, post 9-11 reaction, that many Muslims were more socially conservative and voted, the ones who did vote, voted more Republican than Democrat, right? Republicans just came out straight up racist and invading Muslim countries and the Patriot Act and all that. So then we thought that we had real friends or allies on the left, right? Which then a younger group of Muslims uh, then saw the left as their awliya, right? Their patrons as their, uh, as their allies and swallowed a lot of things, right? And uh, I think that uh, some of this affinity or seeking to be accepted has left many people compromised where they feel like they can speak truth to power if it's power on the right. But when it comes to power or influence on the left, then uh, the, the same type of courage is not really is not really uh, uh, exemplified because at the end of the day, uh, many people, uh, when it comes down to it, um, and, and we can't look into people's hearts, but it appears to be from the from the Zahir perspective that there's still many people and they have activism deep down really want to be accepted by people. It's more about the Ridha of people than the Ridha of Allah Azawajal. And you know, I, and I think what it comes down to is um, wanting to be accepted is, is something that um, comes to what, what I drew a conclusion to, and maybe we can all just chime in on this, is that not fully understanding or not fully knowing what you're a part of when you say, La ilaha illallah Rasulullah, right? <laughs> you're not realizing that your legacy is, you know, you're an acceptance of a dua of Ibrahim alayhi salam, right? And uh, the, 
we 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 don't understand that and that's where you were mentioning that they don't know too much about islam and then they're wanting to use islam as you know uh, getting some type of acceptance or some type of rights um and the the true uh, acceptance is with understanding who your who your Lord is and who your Creator is, and how you're supposed to you know behave with your Creator first and foremost. Yes. You know we hear adab all the time. We hear people talk about adab and akhlaq, but the first adab you have to have is with your Creator, oh. right? And that is that yeah, Allah. Even if I'm the only Muslim in this world, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to feel accepted because I know that you're accepting my iman, right? And I think that that's the paradigm. That's the mindset, right? And I think mindset is key with all of this. Um, and uh, that that will wither away eventually. But one thing that I'm realizing, and you can chime in on this, um, that everything that we talked about right now mm-hmm. is becoming marginalized. And the mindset that we have seems to be a very very minority mindset right now. Yes. Maybe it just seems like that because you know what you see on social media, you know, that's what that's what's the, the hot story, but it seems like this is even though we're talking about pure Islamic ideas, it seems like this is very extreme to some people or very backwards or very Neanderthal. Right? I think that um because it seems too plain to somebody it, that, hey, you have to, your justice has to be in accordance with what Allah wants. It's like, oh, I don't know, this. that seems a little, I don't know, backwards. I think the majority of American Muslims still hold on to this traditional belief and understanding. I think that it is eroding and is eroding quickly, but I still think, uh, anecdotally speaking, that it's still the majority, but that because of social media and how people outside of our community have amplified certain voices, that it appears to be uh the majority i still don't think the majority of our community holds this but going back to also what you said earlier about a lot of this activism being reactionary i think that our community has become so defensive and so because of islamophobia and so reactionary that we have forsaken dawah we have put dawah on the back burner when that should be the first thing. That's a fardun kifaya. Calling people to Allah Azawajal as a community obligation and we should be calling people, yeah, we're all human beings, but no, we are not like all Americans. We have something different. We have a faith and we think it upholds these principles. We're gonna try to live them and we are calling you to accept them, right? We have something that is better it, uh, not just theoretically, but in action that needs to be uh, exemplified. But when you're reactionary, if you're seeking to be accepted by Fulan bin Fulan on the left or on the right, then that's not going to be that. And then also with the belief that what we're calling people to, that the sunnah of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is tibun qulub. It is the medicine of hearts. It is that we have a spiritual medicine in the Quran and the Sunnah that is going to cure some of these problems. Because I'm going to tell you, we tell, and we mentioned Black Lives Matter, right? An example. I don't think any more laws on the books can help black people. Racism cannot be legislated. Anti-black racism cannot be legislated away. Courts can't take it away. Laws can't take it away. El Ansaria racism is a spiritual disease it's a matter of the heart so we have to give the people the medicine and of course i'm not against 
using the law. I mean, I'm involved in civil rights activism. The law is there, but the law, political activism, marching in streets for this judge to make this ruling or this law for body cameras or whatever, that is not going to solve the problem. That is only dealing with symptoms, not dealing with the disease. Exactly. And until as we Muslims look the, the believe truly that Islam has the solutions and that we call people to these solutions and not be shaky about it, we're not going to do what we're really supposed to be doing. But again, this takes confidence. This, this takes not us wanting to copy everyone else's language. This takes us not wanting to go down the lizard hole with everyone else and say, and to see ourselves as something special that's not like everyone else. Mm. That takes, that takes, that takes yakin. It takes yakin. It takes, takes confidence. Yakin. Like you said, I think step number one, even if we want to be proactive, you know, in, in searching for solutions after talking about these ideas, I think one of them is to understand. And I think what builds our confidence is to understand where our legacy starts and what legacy we're a part of. Yes. Um, because I think that's what gives people confidence. If they don't have anything to refer back to, then they're just open to grab anything to give them that feeling of some type of power or some type of belonging, right? Are you are you talking about like breaking out of the colonial mindset? Like, uh, you, yeah, I'm talking about that, and I'm talking about um, um, just um, realizing that to realize why you're here is to realize the legacy, the prophetic legacy that you're a part of. Something that I tell my students that really shakes them, and it shakes me every time I think about it too, is that if you were to ask who is the greatest Sahabi, right? People by default will say Abu Bakr radiallahu an, right? Mm -hmm. Imam Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti, he has a really awesome take on this. He says that Rasulullah when he ascended, al-Miraj, he met Isa alayhi salam. And Isa alayhi salam is still alive. And he, when he comes down, he's going to be a Muhammadi. He's mm -hmm. going to be part of the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu So, after the after Rasulullah the greatest Sahabi is Isa Alayhi Salam, mm -hmm. right? Then Abu Bakr radiAllahu Anh. So you actually have a prophet that is a part of your Ummah, right? Musa Alayhi Salam wished when he met Rasulullah wished that he can be in our shoes, wished that he could be a part of the Ummah of Rasulullah right? So a lot of it, it comes back to understanding where you come from, of what you're actually a part of, and who would actually prophets wish that they were in our shoes, right? Um, and I think that gives us some confidence, inshallah. Oh, so real quick. So taking that into effect, I just want to ask you about one thing since I've got yes. you here. Um, right now, like we, we've established that we have the left that's working with Muslims and some of them are working with them for their own agenda. Yes. But my question is this. So I know you mentioned this in the beginning of the podcast that you see in the future that it's going to be a problem for us. Yes. And the way I understand it is, and in my opinion, is that... Um, the way I see it will be a problem is that I think in the future, um, a lot of Muslims, uh, they may end up looking like hypocrites because they will be aligning with certain movements on the left that have uh, are totally against Islamic principles. Um, for example, it may be LGBT, it may be whatever it could be, things like this um, in the future. And what's going to happen is that once the left is done with their usage or, or their, their need for us, to support them, they may turn around to us and say, well, wait a minute, you guys are still backwards. You guys need to reform your ideas because you're not compatible with, mm -hmm. with, with, with us in 2017. Possible. It's already right? starting, actually. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's the biggest threat that I feel and the problem with, because at, in the end of the day, in 10 years, 15 years down the line, it's going to turn around and bite us in the rear end. And now we're going to be forced to say, well... Uh, no, no, like us still, you know, you have to still like us, you know, we were with you before, you know, but we don't really believe that. It's just kind of, you know, that's a different time. I mean, they're going to make all these excuses, 
And I think we're going to find ourselves in a deeper hole because they're going to say, well, you know, you basically lied to us. You said you were cool with LGBT. You said you were cool with these things. And now you're not. So, uh, I mean, what's your take on that? They're already pushing it. And I would go to say that secular, secular liberalism, in fact, is a religion. It has a certain set of ideas and it tries to proselytize or propagate those ideas. And if one does not uh, accept those ideas and embrace those ideas that they perform a type of takfir over those who do not accept and promote those ideas. So it's, it's, it, it is getting to the point that uh, if Muslims uh, don't accept certain things, right, uh, under the banner of equality, that uh, they will be uh, completely dissed as being the bad Muslim, let the good open a progressive Muslims, right, which will then cause uh, a further split or further division. Um, I see this. I see this coming. And um, to be frank with you, uh, I believe this is part of prophecy. So I think I that gonna... we need to be uh, firm in our beliefs and try to uh, instill the proper uh, belief and proper confidence knowing and understanding that there are going to be Muslims are going to be lost in the sauce. Rasulullah Islam predicted that one day that holding on to one's deen would be like a hot piece of coal. Yeah. Right. Um, that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be uh, misguided carrying the title of Muslim. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam narrated in al-Bukhari wa Muslim when he walked in on his, on, on his wife, meaning Zainab, radiallahu anha, he starts off in this one hadith, very well known, La ilaha illallah, waylun al-Arab. He said, woe to the Arabs, you know, for the, for the mischief that's coming near. And he talked about how Arabs would be overtaken. He literally talked about it. And Zainab was like, well, will this happen even though there's pious or righteous amongst us? He said, naam, yes. He said, you will see this when, when, uh, when indecency, when al-khupth, becomes widespread and accepted amongst the people. So Muslims are going to accept uh, uh, um, al-khubth. They're going to accept things that are qabih, that are indecent. They're going, say, they're going to accept things that are munkar. Uh, there's another hadith that's weaker. Rasulullah said, how will you be when you see the mahroof or the good as munkar and the munkar is mahroof? This is all prophesied, right? So, we also have to understand that, that things are going to get worse. And I'm not saying this to be pessimistic. I'm saying this for us to trust in Allah and tire our camels and that we need to fortify ourselves, try to fortify our communities as much as we can. But the reality is things are going to get worse until Al-Masih and Sayyidun Al-Mahdi until their appearance. We just have to try to do our best and understand our accountability to Allah and try to do and follow the command of Allah Azza wa Jal that He said in the Quran, in the Quran, yeah, yeah, to save ourselves and our families from the hellfire. Yes, Ustad. Before we have a few minutes left, and I know you need to get back to the intensive. Mm -hmm. Um, before we wrap up here, I want to get your like. We've heard a lot of a lot of different <clears throat> thoughts here today. Um, a lot of listeners are going to want to know. Okay, so what next? At an individual level. Can you give us something from a dini side and then something from an activist side that each person can like do like you know a basic step so we can kind of get on this path because I think that like a lot of these okay the umma we have to get shape up but these are very general vague 
I, we, we all know that. We've been hearing that for like 20 years. Even mm-hmm. if we say we have to go back to the Quran and Sunnah, that's very general, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. We're talking about specifics. Very right? specific, like, you know, um, for example, whether, like, if there's one thing, like, for example, is it a relationship with Mashiach? Is it studying a certain text? Or, 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 I don't know, for example, or on the activism side, is it joining the organization? Is it, you know, working on, I know one time you were, I heard you speak with, I think it was Tarek Tore on another show. Yeah. Talking about how, like, people want to talk about activism, but activism is like tutoring a kid on the south side of chicago for a year right mm. you yeah know what I mean? said that yeah um i think the most important and i try not to make these i, I try not to make distinctions between dini and dunyawi uh, as much as because uh, i i think that uh we need to try to move out of our conceptual framework that we can have uh a, a a, a spiritual life and a and a secular life or a religious life and a profane life, right? Sacred life and a profane life. And I know you didn't mean it that way, but just to say this, I think the most important thing that we can do as a community is for people with like minds to sit and have regular sohbah. I think it's the most important thing that we can do. And find those like can you elaborate what you mean by sohbah? sohbah. Okay, sohbah is like related to the word for the sahaba, but basically means to communing or coming together and having fellowship by sitting in the same company because there are like minds and like spirits in al-arwah, junun mujannad, as the hadith of the Prophet, anybody remember Tirmidhi, that spirits or legionnaires are like troops in the army and we really need each other. And to go, these spirits that are inside of our etsem or our physical bodies, like our physical bodies come from an origin that has melanin and speak a certain language, but the spirits is a metaphysical reality that transcends that. And for us to fortify ourselves and become a stronger ummah, these spirits have to come together and sit with each other, crossing social economical, socioeconomic barriers, suburban, urban, uh, Desi, Arab, Black, people from the Balkans, immigrants, people who were born and raised here, that we have to be more intentional of stepping outside of our comfort zones and just to have sohbah. And I think that a lot of khair can grow just in the sohbah. I'm all down with durus and classes and studying this text. And we can talk about Esayuti and Ibn al-Qayyim and these al-Ghazali or whoever, like scholars are teaching from particular texts. But really what fortified uh, the Sahaba, and I was talking about the importance of Ahlul Sufa, the people of the veranda, these were poor Muslims that had Muslims with wealth that came and would sit with them. There were Arabs, non-Arabs, and they just kept company with each other. They became close brothers where people were willing to give half of their wealth to their brother, where they were willing, they, they loved each other so much that they preferred their brother over themselves, even their lives, right? And that's the type of Islam we're going to need if we're going to be able to survive in this belly of the beast called the United States of America. This is my opinion. Wallahu alam. Of course, there's more to it, but that's... that's. Can I, I, can I just mention something about mindset as far as... Um, we, if we, I, I think if we really, really want to get to uh, understanding who we are and where we are, one thing is that there's a, there's a, there's a really, uh, there's a really uh, fine line between victimization and, and knowing that you're never going to be accepted. And what do I mean by that? That Rasulullah never played 
the victimization card. And we as Muslims are never going to do that. Right. But why? For the next part I'm going to say is that our mindset should be that we shouldn't be surprised if we're never going to be accepted as Muslims anywhere in the world, not just the United States, anywhere. If you want to bring about the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have to get ready to know that you're never going to be accepted. But you will be accepted, inshallah, by some people. But I'm, I'm not trying to be alarming or anything, but I'm saying that, but in that process, because you know no one's going to accept you, you can't play victimization either, right? You have to know that by being the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to be, you're going to be a gharib, you're going to be a stranger, as Rasulullah yes. said, right? And that's why I love you, but I love that you brought up the suhba because you're not going to have anybody else. All you're going to have is like-minded people to say, la ilaha Rasulullah, to stay strong. And that's how we revive ourselves. Right in this in this in this world of wolves, if you want to say right, and that's how Rasulullah told us that we're living in a jail. So all you have is believers like yourselves, because no one's going to accept you if you want to be the way Allah knows who wants you to be. Not in a negative way, is because that there's there's a lot of stuff that we can get into. Why that is, we discuss that on a roundtable, inshallah. But you guys can do your. So own you guys research. are my cellmates, basically. Of course, yeah. we're all. Yeah, no mu'min with gentle care. Yeah, Ustad Dawood, it's been a pleasure. We'd love to have you back on sometime. I know. Uh, I wish we could, man. We I think we could have talked for like three hours with this brother. Yeah, we should do. Long one next time. Inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> you know, maybe we can do some stuff. But we we'll come visit you in Michigan. But uh, how can people uh, learn more about you? Engage with you on social media? Do you have anything? I know you've got a book coming out. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, we already have one book out with one of my brothers, brother from another mother, Sidi Mubarak, who lives in Chicagoland area. Uh, we co-authored a book that came out in February. It's called Centering Black Narrative: uh, uh, Black Muslim Nobles Among the Early Pious Muslims. So we wrote a book about that, talking about some of the uh, the Muslims who are uh, black, including black Arabs, because there's a misconception about that, from the Salaf. And Ustad Abdullah Ali, who uh, teaches uh, Sharia at Zaytuna College, wrote the foreword. So we have that out, uh, and we uh, self-published that. We have volume two that should be coming out uh, later on this this uh, this year, inshallah, centering the black narrative Ahlubayt, blackness in Africa. And it's something wow. we want to lift up because many people amongst Ahlul Sunnah uh, have been led to believe for various reasons that Ahlubayt is only the property of the Ithna Ashariya or the Twelver Shias where, in fact, uh, you can't be a true follower of the Sunnah without having appreciation and loving the family of the Prophet So we write in that book and uh, I'm also pinning something else relating to the subject that we're talking about, about uh, uh, activism. Uh, but I can be uh, contacted. I have a website at uh, DawoodWalid.com. Uh, uh, that's W-A-L-I-D, D-A-W-U-D-W-A-L-I-D.com. You do a better job at updating that. Uh, and then I'm I'm also on Twitter and and, and Facebook, but you know I uh, I'm a frequent traveler to different uh, localities. Uh, in the uh, mid mid August, inshallah, I'll be visiting uh, the city of Atlanta for the for the Georgians who are listening. We'll be giving the khutbah there on August uh, 11th, uh, at the Masjid of Al Islam, and then also be uh, we'll be speaking at a conference uh, with also a very uh, dear friend of mine. Uh, Dr. Bilal Ware, who's a professor at the University of Michigan, uh, Ann Arbor, who teaches. Um, he He's a very interesting brother, too. If you haven't brought him on, you might be interested because he has that academic background of studying history with a particular emphasis on West Africa, but he also studied underneath traditional mashaykh and ulama 
in uh, in West Africa in Senegal. So uh, you know we are. Just recently be, came back from there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. I made a trip. We're planning on going back uh, in in December, uh, to uh, to Senegal, which is a very uh, which is a very special place in the. Uh, Perhaps it's a, it's a topic for another show about the rich history of Islam and, and, and West Africa and you know Nigeria and Senegalese, Gambia area, and the type of scholarship that was produced and how uh, Europeans uh, tried to erase that uh, heritage from the uh, and that knowledge relating a- African people uh, through uh, the colonialist project and what they did. So yeah, I think that would make a great discussion yeah, to have because I know Mort here has. Had a, quite a few travels to West Africa, and I'm sure you, he can yeah. share some stories with well, you. Next as well. time, when we, when we on, on a podcast, we'll talk about. It. I've been all over West Africa, so. Mashallah. I just like Dawood Walid for coming through. Uh, really appreciate it. For our listeners out there, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at themadmumlukes at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, and leave us a five star rating on iTunes. For my co hosts, Sheikh Amr Saeed, Morton Sim, this is Mahin signing off. Assalamu alaikum.